This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjenny. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjenny. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 3. The Continuity of Being. Section 1. Egypt. Apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being has been that being is one and continuous. God, or the gods, man and the universe, are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist, so that a hierarchy of gods, as well as a hierarchy of men, can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. The creation of any new aspect of being is thus not a creation out of nothing, but a creation out of being, in short, a process of being. This conception of being in process, when seen in its cosmic aspect, can be either static or dynamic, the framework of reference being history. The process is static if it flows upward out of history, as in ancient Egypt, being in this perspective has being in this perspective has achieved a desired earthly order and now exists to serve, magnify and then move into the eternal order. The process is dynamic <clears throat> if it flows forward through history towards a final historical order or if it merely flows forward as an endless process as in Mesopotamian thought. In both forms a cyclic view is possible and Quote, eternal cyclic renovation, end quote, was an aspect of Egyptian hermet hermetic thought as well as other, of other philosophies. For Egyptian thought, God and man were of a common nature and alike products of a common being. As Wilson has observed, quote, between God and man there was no point at which one could erect a boundary line and state that here substance changed from divine, superhuman, immortal to mundane, human, mortal. End quote. The Egyptian religious faith was not monotheistic, but monophysite, not one God, but <clears throat> but one nature in common to gods and men. It is not a matter of a single God, but of single nature observed single nature of observed phenomena in the universe with the clear possibility of exchange and substitution. With relation to gods and men, the Egyptians were monophysites, many men and many gods, but all ultimately of one nature. End quote. This common nature was shared by the entire universe in varying degrees and set forth in varying aspects of worship. Juvenal, in Satire 15, commented on the garden gods of Egypt, quote, It is an impious outrage to crunch leeks and onions with the teeth. What a holy race to have such divinities springing up in their gardens, End quote. Both gods and men developed or evolved, and in a very real sense, battled their way out of the original chaos of being. According to Fontenrose, Quote, the peoples of the Near and Middle East looked upon creation as a process of bringing order out of chaos. End quote. This is both process and combat. Quote, For the cosmos has been won from the chaos that still surrounds it as a cultivated pot from the encompassing wilderness. End quote. Chaos or darkness generates life, 
it is both the source of life and the enemy of life. Quote, life requires order, which means putting a limit upon action in certain directions. But an order that resists all change and further creative activity denies life and turns into its opposite. It becomes a state of inactivity and death. End quote. Chaos and life are thus in a necessary tension. Life without chaos becomes death, but life which surrenders to chaos and abandons its order is also death. Life requires order, and order means death, the triumph of chaos. As Fontenrose notes, quote, This is only to say that both life forces and death forces are necessary in a properly balanced individual and world. End quote. Here we have the dialectic of man in the ancient world, chaos and life, a dialectic which undergirds much of subsequent thought. Expressed in worldwide myths of antiquity, it reappears as modern medical science in the psychoanalysis of Freud and his theory of Eros and Thanatos, life instincts and death instincts. Chaos and cosmos must thus coexist in balance in the ideal state. Cosmos means the world of the gods and the world of men, heaven and earth, and chaos is the underworld. The ideal state, the high point of being and the centre of the world, is that society where the three levels of being, heaven, earth and the underworld, are in communication and, quote, this communication is sometimes expressed through the image of a universal pillar, axis mundi, end quote, which brings all three together. A state or empire which dominated the world scene of its day was especially sure that its society represented the centre of the earth, the high point in the process of being to date, that order in which chaos, men and the gods were in communication. Thus, in Assyria, the king officiated before a garlanded pole or tree which has been explained as the ritual centre of the earth. This communication was the basis of political and religious life. Quote, reality is conferred through participation in the symbolism of the centre. Cities, temples, houses become real by the fact of being assimilated to the centre of the world. End quote. This communication rested in a community of being through participation in one common being out of which the gods had germinated and developed and from whom men were germinated. According to the Papyrus of Ani, quote, the Osiris, the scribe Ani, whose word is truth, saith, I flew up out of primeval matter. I came into being like the god Kepra. I germinated, or grew up, like the plants. I am concealed, or hidden, like the tortoise, or turtle, in his shell. I am the seed of every god. I am yesterday of the four quarters of the earth, and the seven Urei, who came into being in the eastern land. I am the Great One, that is Horus, who illumineth the Hemimet spirits with the light of his body. I am that God in respect of Set. I am Thoth, who stood between them, that is Horus and Set, as the judge on behalf of the governor of Sechem, Letopolis, and the souls of Anu, Heliopolis. He was like a stream between them. I have come. I rise up on my throne. I am endowed with a coup, that is, spirit soul. I am mighty. I am endowed with godhood among the gods. I am Kensu, 
the lord of every kind of strength. End quote. This pride of achievement manifested by the god Osiris can be shared by men. Man is able, by works of righteousness, to become one with the gods. To become one with the heavenly beings, he must be able to affirm a confession, which among other things declared, quote, I have not committed sin, I have not stolen, I have not slain men and women, I have not stolen the property of God, I have not committed adultery, I have not lain with men, I have made none to weep, I have not been an eavesdropper, I have not shut my ears to the word of truth, I have wronged none, I have done no evil. End quote. Having been judged innocent, the deceased becomes divine, declaring, quote, There is no member of my body which is not a member of God. Thoth protecteth my body altogether, and I am bra day by day. End quote. Salvation is deification. Moreover, quote, It is not spiritual but physical salvation that is sought. End quote. In the biblical faith, resurrection is an act of discontinuity and a miracle. In the Egyptian perspective, man after death manifested a continuity either towards chaos and destruction or towards deity and resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection in Egypt was set in the context of a naturalistic fertility cult perspective. The gods themselves, quote, are not immortal, but perennial, end quote. The first creation arose out of the primeval waters of chaos, the gods and the primeval hillock, or mountain, arising and then becoming the source of subsequent being. Chaos is the ground of being and the source of all being. And an Egyptian papyrus declared, quote, The All-Lord said, after he had come into being, I am he who came into being as Kepri. When I had come into being, being itself came into being, and all beings came into being after I came into being, end quote. The place of creation is the primeval hillock, mountain, or pyramid, arising out of the waters of chaos to establish order. This sacred mountain, or tower, is the meeting place of heaven and earth, where communication is established between heaven, earth, and hell. It, quote, is situated at the centre of the world. Every temple or palace, and, by extension, every sacred city or royal residence, is a sacred mountain, mountain thus becoming a centre, True social order requires peace and communication with both, both chaos and deity, and society either moves downward into chaos or forward into deification. The significance of the Tower of Babel is thus apparent. It denied the discontinuity of God's being and asserted man's claim to a continuity of being with God and heaven. The Tower was the gate to God and the gate of God, signifying that man's social order made possible an ascent of being into the divine order. The Egyptian pyramid set forth the same faith. The gods arose out of chaos, and the primeval earth hill, or pyramid, is their fitting symbol. In relationship to eternity, the gods stand thus, in the picture of a triangle pointing upwards. In relation to man, the pyramid is inverted, the triangle pointing downwards. Man's relationship to the gods and heaven is also symbolized by the pyramid, pointing upward. In later mystery religions and in 
Kabbalism especially, the two pyramids, the inverted pyramid of gods and the sky-reaching pyramid of man, were brought together to form a star, which looks like the Star of David. The double pyramid, the union of the human and the divine, their coalescence in the war against chaos. Its first known Jewish use is in the 3rd century AD. In Egyptian thought, there is a continuity rather than a coalescence of human and divine, so that the relationship of the two pyramids, pyramids can, perhaps be, can be perhaps described symbolically thus, and it looks sort of like an hourglass with a triangle pointing downwards on top of a triangle pointing upwards. The meeting point of the two pyramids is the pharaoh. Ritually, quote, one of the highest sacraments consists in setting up a mount, or altar, which represents the world. The sacrificer, by the ritual, recreates the earth, but he recreates it by the same methods as were used by the original creator, end quote. The ruler is thus also a priest as well as a king, since he, as the apex of the pyramid, is the person who has contact with the gods. Indeed, he may himself he may be himself divine, either in his person or office. The Egyptian pharaoh was both man and god, priest and king, the umbilical cord uniting society with the gods. Quote, Worship King Nimat Re, living forever within your bodies, and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is perception, which is in men's hearts, and his eyes search out every body. He is Ray, by whose beams one sees. He is one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. He is one who makes the land greener than does a high Nile, for he has filled the two lands with strength and life. This king is a car, vital force, the other self which supported a man. And his mouth is increase, he who is to be his creation, for he is the kunum of all bodies, kunum, a god who fashioned mortals, the begetter who creates the people, end quote. <coughs> As the umbilical cord, the pharaoh was of necessity central to both political order and religious order. As Mercer noted, quote, the most fundamental idea of worship in ancient Egypt connected itself with the person of the God-manifesting Pharaoh, end quote. Similar concepts traced together with the ancient Egyptian beliefs to old and widespread Hamitic belief are present in Africa in the 20th century, holding that all people are the slaves of the king, who is absolute lord and master of the land and of the bodies and lives and possessions of all his people. Common to these African cultures, as to those of the ancient Near and Middle East, is the idea of a ladder reaching from earth to heaven, a form of the belief in the pyramid or tower. Atum, the first god, was bisexual, that great he-she, according to a coffin text, and, quote, he was not only god, but all things to come. And later, Orisus is past and future, cause and potentiality, end quote. These two aspects were opened to man by Pharaoh. Quote, the king was the mediator between the community and the sources of divine power, obtaining it through the ritual and regularising it through his government. End quote. 
The king was necessary to social order, and he was essential to social salvation. Quote, the king was recognized as the successor of the creator, and this view was so prevalent that comparisons between the son and Pharaoh unavoidably possessed theological overtones. End quote. Kingship, in this sense, was basic to civilization, and the coronation of the Pharaoh was an epiphany. The Pharaoh represented order against chaos. His death was a temporary victory for chaos. Nature required kingship, for nature represented order as against chaos, so that nature was not conceivable apart from the Pharaoh, who was not only the mediator between God, the gods and man, and between society and nature, but also the source of order against chaos. Incest was an important aspect of Egyptian mythology, and between brother and sister, common to the royal line. Although economic motives were present, such incest also had a deep-seated religious motive. It was a controlled act of chaos, an act in which order deliberately entered into chaos to make it fruitful for order. Plutarch's Lives, in describing Julius Caesar at the Rubicon, reported that, quote, The night before he passed the river, he had an impious dream that he was unnaturally familiar with his mother, end quote. Suetonius reported the same dream, or a similar one, for an earlier date in Caesar's life, quote, The following night he was much disquieted by a dream in which he imagined he had carnal company with his own mother but hopes of most glorious achievement were kindled in him by the soothsayers who interpreted the dream to mean that he was destined to have sovereignty over all the world, his mother whom he saw under him signifying none other than the earth, which is counted as the mother of all things. This concept, somewhat dimmed in Caesar, prevails full force in some contemporary cultures where incestuous unions, normally a horror and a terror, become obligatory in the invoked chaos of the festival. The king warred against and controlled chaos, and the duty of the people as well as their privilege was to be in subjection to the king in order to participate in the community of heaven, earth and hell in the person of Pharaoh. Quote, One might say, though only metaphorically, that the community had sacrificed all freedom in order to, to acquire this certainty of harmony with the gods. End quote. Harmony was central to Egyptian religion. Because of the centrality of the king to all things, the great oath in Egyptian courts of law was by the life of Pharaoh. For the Egyptians, right conduct was doing what the king, the beloved of Ptah, desired. Magic, man's attempt to manipulate and control the powers of nature, was central to Egyptian society and life. The gods had used magic against chaos, and man must utilize the magical powers made available by the gods. The king was one of the gods and, quote, the one official intermediary between the people and the gods, the one recognized priest of all the gods, end quote. He was the shepherd, a divine title, of the people, over men, the flock of the gods. The dialectical tension of Egyptian thought was between chaos and life, but chaos itself could appear in life when social order collapsed or weakened. Chaos, therefore, could itself be in life, whereas order meant the unity and harmony of heaven, earth, and hell under the divine monarch. 
the one and the many were brought together in the person of the king. The Egyptian language had no word for state. For them, the state was not one institution among many, but rather the essence of the divine order for life and the means of communication between heaven, earth and hell. Life, therefore, was totally and inescapably statist. In this perspective, anything resembling liberty and individuality in the contemporary sense was alien and impossible. Moreover, the cyclic view of nature and history, which is basic to the Osiris faith, and Egyptian religion, made for a pessimistic worldview. The Isis temple inscription reported by Plutarch cited two aspects of this faith. Quote, I am the female nature, or mother nature, which contained in herself the generation of all things. And quoted later, I am all that has been, and is, and shall be, and my peplum no mortal has uncovered. End quote. First, a total immanence is asserted. Deity does not transcend the being of humanity. It is the common being generated first out of chaos and then out of the gods. Second, it has an unknown potentiality. Its future is unknown, covered and veiled. There is no eternal decree of law and order based on an absolute and totally self-conscious potentiality. Instead, there is only a tenuous community against a background of chaos and an unknown potentiality which may include chaos. The only slim wall against this was the king, the divine monarch, and the human apex of the risen mountain of order out of chaos. In his person, Pharaoh was the identity of all being and the identity of unity and particularity. All men had to be under him to be in being. The official voices from Egypt affirmed the stability and permanence of this order. History has entered its emphatic descent. <clears throat> According to Anthes for the ancient Egyptians, eternity is oneness and the human goal after death is deification. Deification was entry into the oneness of the divine order and membership in the state in this life was similarly participation in the divine oneness manifested in the pharaoh and protection against the horror of chaos and meaningless particularity section two mesopotamia in the mesopotamian worldview the tension between creation and chaos was also basic but it was not viewed with the same confidence as in egyptian thought for the Egyptians, the order had arrived and had to be maintained. The Mesopotamian feared the nearness of anarchy. Quote, to the Mesopotamian, accordingly, cosmic order did not appear as something given, rather it became something achieved through a continual integration of the many individual cosmic wills, each so powerful, so frightening. His understanding of the cosmos tended therefore to express itself in terms of integration of wills, that is, in terms of social orders such as the family, the community, and most particularly, the state. To put it succinctly, he saw cosmic order as an order of wills, as a state. End quote. For the Mesopotamians, kingship had descended from heaven. The king was mortal, but his responsibilities were a part of the divine calling. The gods were part of society, and the struggle between cosmic order and chaos was a concern of gods and men alike. Man's prospects in this struggle were bleak, in that chaos triumphed over him in the form of death. 
the Gilgamesh epic portrays Gilgamesh as a man seeking immor immortality and failing through no fault of his own. The epic lacked any sense of original sin. Man is not a sinner, but an innocent victim. Man's life was comprehended and made comprehensible, not through religion, but through the state, for religion was, in essence, political theory. The state, rather than God, is thus the basic environment of man, and the ruler is beyond, all, is beyond appeal in his authority, for there is no order which transcends the state. The gods of the state cannot be appealed to against the state. Quote, a crowd with no leader to organise and direct it is lost and bewildered, like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. It is also dangerous, however. It can be destructive, like waters which break the dams that hold them and submerge fields and gardens if the canal inspector is not there to keep the dams in repair. Finally, a leaderless, unorganised crowd is useless and unproductive, like a field which brings forth nothing if it is not ploughed. Hence, an orderly world is unthinkable without a superior authority to impose his will. The Mesopotamian feels convinced that authorities are always right. The command of the palace, like the command of Anu, cannot be altered. The king's world is right. His utterance, like that of a god, cannot be changed. End quote. For destruction and chaos to overwhelm a state meant a like fate for its gods. Thus, the goddess Ningal is seen in a lamentation over the destruction of Ur by Elamites and Sumerians as herself defeated and homeless. For the Sumerians, quote, A king was the vicegerent of God upon earth, tenant farmer, they called him, and the god was the real ruler of the land. End quote. The king was thus, in a very real sense, the god of this world in terms of his vicegerency. In the Akkadian Amarna letters, the monarch is addressed as the king, my lord, my pantheon, my son god. In biblical literature, god, by virtue of his transcendence and deity, is beyond exhaustive knowledge, but by virtue of his total self-consciousness is the source of certain knowledge. His word for men is clear-cut and knowable. The Mesopotamian gods being involved in a being common to men and chaos and involved in a cosmic struggle of questionable outcome are neither totally sovereign nor fully self-conscious. They can be defeated and they can be self-defeating. The result for the worshipper is clearly moral confusion. How can he truly know gods who do not know themselves? Quote, Oh, that I only knew that these things are well-pleasing to a god. What is good in one's sight is evil for a god. What is bad in one's own mind is good for his god. Who can understand the counsel of the gods in the midst of heaven? The plan of a god is deep waters. Who can comprehend it? Where has befuddled mankind ever learned what a god's conduct is? End quote. Akkadian man could only approach the gods in slim and dubious confidence of his own righteousness. Quote, My clean hands have made a sacrifice before you. End quote. For the Sumerians, quote, The primeval sea engendered the cosmic mountain consisting of heaven and earth united. End quote. The primeval sea, or chaos, was thus the source and ground of heaven and earth, and 
despite all tensions, their ultimate governor. Sumerian religion, in particular Inanna or Ishtar worship, utilised, quote, large numbers of eunuchs and perverts, hierodules and other types of sacred prostitutes, end quote. These represented religiously controlled chaos, but ultimately chaos overtook man and the state. Meanwhile, the mountain or primeval hillock or pyramid represented order as against chaos. The ziggurat or temple tower or stepped pyramid was the religious expression of this faith from at least the days of Sumer. The ziggurat was a link or bond between heaven and earth in their common ascent in being and their war against chaos. Parrot has stated, quote, Thus, the ziggurat appears to me to be a bond of union whose purpose was to assure communication between earth and heaven. For what is the mountain but a giant stepladder by means of which a man may ascend as near as possible to the sky? End quote. The mountain, then, was the bond between heaven and earth against chaos. Sumerian mythology identifies the mountain for us. Your king is the great mountain, the father Enlil. Man's hope, therefore, is comprehended in the form of the state and the person of the king. There is here no concept of an area of freedom from statist control because man has no area of transcendence to the state. His life and hope is the state. In this perspective, the alternative to total statism is not liberty under God, but chaos and the unhesitating choice for the state. Indeed, an alternative to the state does not exist to any real degree, if at all. Quote, Your king is the great mountain, the father Enlil, end quote. But the source and wellspring of that order is chaos, and hence the Mesopotamian pessimism. The pre-Hittite Anatolian religion was naturalistic and shared in Ishtar worship. Hittite religion, with variations, clearly showed the same war against chaos. The title of the Hittite king was the Sun. When he died, he became a god. <clears throat> Quote, the god was to, was to his worshippers exactly what a master was to his slaves. End quote. His representative was the king who was chief priest. The access to the gods was thus mediated by the king. The state was thus again the order of existence and man's entire world. Man was a creature of the state, and theology was a branch or aspect of political science. The Babylonian Code of Hammurabi saw the authority of law in an enduring kingship, which, like the sun, rose to light up the land. Nippur-Durankai, the cult centre of Enlil, set forth the bond of heaven and earth. Hammurabi saw himself as, quote, the shepherd of the people, whose deeds are pleasing to Ishtar, end quote, and as, quote, the ancient seed of royalty, the powerful king, the son of Babylon, who causes light to go forth over the lands of Summer and Akkad, the king who has made the four quarters of the world subservient, the favourite of Inanna am I, end quote. As Unger has pointed out, whereas Moses proclaimed law as a law of Jehovah, quote, thus saith the Lord, End quote. In the imminent religion and political theory of Babylon, Hammurabi proclaimed the law, quote, I establish law and justice. End quote. <clears throat> In Hammurabi's law, 
quote, the entire population is theoretically in slavery to the king. And quoted later, kingship was lowered from heaven, end quote. And the Assyrian monarchs proclaimed themselves, quote, king of the world, end quote, because their order represented the true cosmic order, which the gods established and made the, king, made the king's shepherding as agreeable to the people as is the smell of the plant of life. The Assyrian monarch was not only the great shepherd and source of order, but he was also the source of chaos. He was Usumgal, the giant snake or great dragon and the source of terror. Quote, I am Shalmaneser, the legitimate king, the king of the world, the king without rival, the great dragon, the only power within the four rims of the earth, overlord of all the princes, who has smashed all his enemies as if they be earthenware, the strong man, unsparing, who shows no mercy in battle. End quote. The Assyrian monarch therefore represented both chaos and order, and he was the incarnation of both. The fearful power of Assyria rested not only in its military might, but also in its summation of the dialectic of chaos and creation, in the terrifying person and activity of the Assyrian king. For the Assyrian, there was no escape from chaos into order, nor any escape from the total order of the state into chaos, since both chaos and order were summed up in the monarch and the state. We can agree with Oppenheim's comment concerning the religion of the common man in Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian cultures. Quote, At bottom, his outlook was that of fatalistic resignation. There was no salvation. End quote. A prayer found in Assurbanipal's library expresses this unhappy mood. Quote, O Lord, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The Goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not know. End quote. The monarch himself, who embodied both chaos and order, echoed this pessimism. A letter of Asurbanipal quotes two proverbs expressive of cynicism. Quote, when the potter's dog went into the oven, he even growled at the potter. And quoted later, a sinful woman at the gate of a judge's house, her words prevail over that of her husband. End quote. The cosmic mountain was basic to Babylonian thought, as to all thought in the ancient world, with various modifications from Egypt to China. The king, in the context of ritual, was a god, was God. At times, he was, quote, the link between the gods and the people whom they had created to do them service. He represented the people before the gods, and in turn was the pipeline through which the gods regulated the affairs of the state for the people, end quote. Mankind was made from the blood of a slain god, and in another myth, the gods declared to the goddess, goddess Memai, You are the primeval womb, creatress of mankind. There was thus a continuity of being between gods and men. 
This continuity of being was an important aspect of astrology then and now, since astrology was based on the theory of correspondence between the earth and the sky. This correspondence rested in a common being which, in its varying aspects, manifested like a power in the stars and in men. Babylonian omens saw chaos as the source of fertility and power. Thus, quote, if a man is in his dream goes in sexually to a wild beast, his household will become prosperous, end quote. Temple prostitution was present in Babylon, as it almost invariably is where chaos is an aspect of the religious dialectic. Jacobson, in his discussion of the cosmos as a state and the function of, a, of the state, has called attention to an important aspect of Mesopotamian thought. Quote, the fact that the Mesopotamian universe was conceived of as a state, that the gods who owned and ruled the various city-states were bound together in a higher unity, the assembly of the gods, which possessed executive organs for exerting outward pressure as well as for enforcing law and order internally, has far-reaching consequences for Mesopotamian history and for the ways in which historical events were viewed and interpreted. It vastly strengthened tendencies toward political unification of the country by sanctioning evening even the most violent means used toward that end. For any conqueror, if he was successful, was recognised as the agent of Enlil. It also provided, even at times when national unity was at a low ebb and the many city-states were, for all practical purposes, independent units, a background on which international law could work. End quote. Two implications are clearly apparent here. First, the universe was a state, and Earth should be a state. Both Assyria and Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, sought to unify the world of their day, forcibly moving and dispersing recalcitrant peoples in order to break down old loyalties and to create a unified empire. Second, it was the successful conqueror, not the legitimate ruler, who was the agent of Enlil, the instrument of the gods. This placed a premium on force and violence, but even more, it declared that the divine law and order was manifested in the most powerful force of the day, beyond which there could be no appeal because the powers of heaven were manifested in it. Another and widely different power could manifest the divine agency tomorrow, but it always rested at the moment with the greatest existing power. Nebuchadnezzar, born into this faith, could ask incredulously of the three Hebrews, Quote, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? End quote, from Daniel 3.15. For Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to appeal to a God beyond Nebuchadnezzar for vindication was to him an incredible thing. Whatever the gods were and sought to be for that day was manifested in history in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. Tomorrow was an unknown factor and Nebuchadnezzar could plead in prayer that his descendants rule forever over the black-headed. With a strong sense of the instability of history, knowing that the king who was representing the gods today could tomorrow be their victim. Thus, whereas in the Egyptian view, quote, the king was recognised as the successor of the creator, end quote, the Mesopotamian king was sometimes identified more clearly with the suffering god. Pessimism was close at hand in Mesopotamian thought. <clears throat> Section 3. Persia 
In ancient Persian thought, the chaos creation dialectic is also present as it is in ancient India, but stated as a tension between darkness and light. The gods war against chaos or against darkness in and from the heavenly realm, and the king wars on earth against darkness. Quote, Ahura Mazda is the great god, as the king of Eren is the great king. Ahura Mazda has created heaven, earth, and mankind. These, therefore, are his property. But he only reserved for himself the domination over heaven. For earth, he has made the king for earth he has made the king of Eren his substitute and his only substitute. He, the king, holds for mankind Ahura Mazda's place. End quote. Plutarch gives confirmation of this position of the Persian monarch in a statement of Artabanus to Themistocles, a Greek giving the condition of audience with the Persian monarch. In Plutarch's Life of Themistocles, we read, quote, Among our many excellent laws, we account this the most excellent, to honour the king and to worship him. As the image of the great preserver of the universe, if then you shall consent to our laws and fall down before the king and worship him, you may both see him and speak to him. But if your mind be otherwise, you must make use of others to intercede for you, for it is not the national custom here for the king to give audience to anyone that doth not fall down before him. End quote. In Plutarch's Life of Artaxerxes, we are told that this monarch regarded quote, himself as divinely appointed for a law to the Persians and the supreme arbiter of good and evil. End quote. Unlike Babylon, where the law was subject to the king, in Medo-Persia, the king was subject to the law. The king could not alter or change his decree. His law bound not only his subjects, but also himself. Esther 1.19 and 8.8 record this power of the law, and Diodorus Siculus reported that Darius III found himself bound by the law. For having sentenced Sharondimos to death, he repented of it and felt that he had erred, but it was not possible to undo what was done by royal authority. This same inviolability of law is cited with respect to Darius the Mede in Daniel 6 verses 8 to 9, 12, 14 and 16 to 17. Some of the most important insights into the Persian concept of kingship are to be found in F.W. Buckler, although he tends to identify this concept as Oriental and Eastern. Its presence in European thought is, clear, is certainly is no less clear, although Christianity and Hellenic Renaissance Enlightenment strands have introduced other concepts as, as well. Thus, as an act of Parliament under Queen Elizabeth of England, spoke of royal absolutism in language that was not limited to the English scene, but was common to the doctrines of state elsewhere, quote, It was asserted that the Queen inherited both an enlarging and a restraining power. By her prerogative, she might set at liberty what was restrained by statute or otherwise, and by her prerogative, she might restrain what was otherwise at liberty, that the royal prerogative was not to be canvassed, nor disputed, nor examined, and did not even admit of any limitation, that absolute princes, such as the sovereigns of England, were a species of divinity, 
that it was in vain to attempt tying the Queen's hands by laws or statutes, since, by means of her dispensing power, she could loosen herself at pleasure, and that even if a clause should be annexed to a statute excluding her dispensing power, she could first dispense with that clause and then with the statute. End quote. This was more power than the Oriental Persian monarch could claim. John Doland, in 1600, wrote of Elizabeth, quote, When others sing venite exultemus, stand by and turn to noli emulari, for quare fremuerentu use oremus, vivat Eliza for an ave marie, end quote. Lord North wrote of Elizabeth to the Bishop of Eli, saying, quote, She is our God in earth. If there be perfection in flesh and blood, undoubtedly it is in her majesty. End quote. In different terminology, an even greater absolutism is now in process of being granted to the United Nations. Oriental monarchy is not alone in seeing the monarch or the state as God on earth. If the transcendental and discontinuous nature of the being of God be denied, then the God, gods or powers of the cosmos are continuous with man and identifiable with him. To the extent that they are directly identified with man, to that extent the social order is absolute and a total power. In full-blown pantheism, the one and the many and every aspect of being are completely unified and totally identifiable with one another. The most minute particle, then, as fully incorporates being in itself as the greatest man or force for being is one being and is totally and exhaustively present in all things. No social order is possible in terms of such a concept, although anarchism is an aspect of this faith. <clears throat> Section 4. The Chain of Being The Great Chain of Being concept moves towards this identity, but definitely does not possess it. There is a hierarchy of being, with a thinness of being in most places, and a concentration of being at other points. This greater imminence of being can be manifested in a monarch, in reason, or in a class, or a people, or it can be manifested in the collective whole of humanity. But wherever manifested, this being is law beyond appeal. It is possible for the future to see a further development of being, but for the present there is no appeal beyond the law of manifest power and being. The powers that be are, supreme are a supreme court against which there is no appeal. Queen Elizabeth was declared to be beyond all law. The Persian monarch was, be was bound by law, but it was his law issuing only from him, so that he was bound to himself, to self-consistency. <clears throat> the concept of the continuity of being, therefore, is incapable of producing other than a totalitarian order, whether it be a monarchy, an aristocracy, or a democracy. The high point of being is manifested in the social order and its total law. Apart from it, men have no true being. They are outlaws, mentally sick or socially maladjusted, they are seen as incomplete or deformed human beings whose only hope is conformity to the continuity of being in its present manifestation. The only hope such an outcast can have is that, however deformed he may be in terms of the present, the next development of being might be his vindication. 
although the freak of today, he may be the standard form of being tomorrow. Thus, Aristotle was interested in freakish births for this reason, and as Cornelius Van Til has pointed out, the Greeks were interested in Paul's teachings on the resurrection for the same reason. Quote, they believed in the mysterious universe. They were perfectly willing, therefore, to leave open a place for the unknown, but this unknown must be thought of as the utterly unknowable and indeterminate. End quote. This same Greek concept, in a Gnostic version, is the foundation of the thinking of Eric Vujelin, who reads history in terms of the concept of the continuity of being and sees progress in terms of the leap in being. This is, of course, a totally relativistic concept. Truth is what the incarnate or manifest being of the day determines it to be, and it then changes with the next leap in being. Stalin was the incarnate of truth, was the incarnate truth for his day, and Khrushchev, with his variations, is the truth of being for his era. When Khrushchev criticized Stalin on February 25, 1956, a question quickly arose as to the infallibility of the dictatorship of the proletariat, the incarnation of manifest being, in view of these criticisms of Stalin. Was not the infallibility and authority of the party endangered by this speech? This impression was subsequently corrected by Khrushchev. Aspects of Stalin's leadership, which were incorrect for the present, had their place in terms of Stalin's day and must be seen in historical perspective. Accordingly, Khrushchev concluded, quote, Stalin will take a due place as a dedicated Marxist-Leninist and stalwart revolutionary. Our party and the Soviet people will remember Stalin and pay tribute to him. End quote. This same concept of history was read into by Amer was read into American history by the U.S. Supreme Court under Oliver Wendell Holmes, whose concept of the law saw law as the dominant mores of the people. Truth, therefore, was pragmatic, democratic, and relative. Basic to this position was an acceptance of evolutionary thought, and evolution is simply a modern application of the concept of the continuity of being to the problem of origins. In the ancient Persian version, the kingdom of God is present on earth in the state, and the glory of God is possessed by the monarch. The great king personally represents God on earth. He is both man and God, continuous with both deity and humanity, and it is important for men to be incorporated into his being by rights of unity, in particular the royal feast and the robe of honour. This concept of divine kingship has been a continuing aspect of Iranian history. It is an important aspect of Akbar's decree of 1579, making him the caliphate of the faithful, one directly inspired of God, the rightful heir of the kingdom of God and the caliphate of the age. This ancient concept of the kingdom as one body of continuous being between God, the king and the state and his people is important, for in its modern form it is the doctrine of the corporateness and completeness of humanity. The high point of being is in its, deve in its development is man and all law is of man and for man according to this faith. Humanity, therefore, must be one and undivided, and no law can be imposed on it save its own will, 
as manifested in an elite or in a consensus. Thus, the ancient empires of Egypt, Assyria and other realms have their more modern and more far counterpart in the dreams of a one world order. Section 5. The Bible and the Concept of Being <coughs> Proponents of the social gospel and of social action by the churches are insistent in reading the Bible in terms of this continuity concept. The whole of the Bible, however, sharply militates against it. First, a sharp discontinuity between the sovereign, absolute and omnipotent God and man, his creature, is declared. There can exist between man and God only an ethical, not a metaphysical community, whereas the community of being prevails in the pagan concept of the kingdom. Second, because man is a sinner, the ethical community of life in the kingdom of God is limited to those who are regenerate in Jesus Christ. In both Old and New Testaments, the community is ethical, rests on a vicarious sacrifice, typical in the Old, Jesus in the New Testament, and is sharply divisive with respect to humanity, discriminating between the saved and the lost. In John 6, the multitude, on perceiving the divine powers of the Messiah, sought forcibly to make him king on their terms, to control God thereby in terms of their own kingdom. Jesus, first, refused to accept their kingdom and crown, and second, offered them participation and membership only in his perfect humanity. They could eat his flesh, partake of his perfect humanity, be one body of it, with it, and drink his blood, accept his atoning and vicarious sacrifice as the grounds of their salvation and new life. Thus, he denied any metaphysical continuity and made the ethical communion with himself conditional upon their acceptance of him as man's redeemer. Two texts are sometimes cited as contrary evidence, although wrongly so. The first is Christ's use of Psalm 82 in John 10 verse 34. Ye are gods. Psalm 82 is addressed to judges or civil magistrates. According to scripture, judgment and vengeance belong to God alone, to be exercised, if not directly, then through his duly constituted law and authority in the home, church and state. Man cannot take judgment into his own hands. He can exercise it only under God, in a God-given office, as father, presbyter, and state officer, and in that office only within the bounds of the word of God. The use of the term gods in Psalm 82, and elsewhere, has reference not to the person, but to the function of the office, to fulfill God's law. In Psalm 82, such officers are warned, that their wickedness is known to God, who denounces them, concluding, quote, I have said, ye are gods, end quote, but because of their treasonable iniquity, quote, ye shall die like men, end quote. Jesus cited the psalm to issue the same warning to the leaders of his day. With this difference, the test of their divine authority was not merely their conduct towards those suing for justice, but also supremely their relationship toward himself. Because their office partook of the function, but not the person, of God in the exercise of justice, now that he, the true Son of God, in person, nature and function, had come, he was the first and foremost test of their office. They had tried to use scripture against Jesus, claiming, Thou, being a man, makest thyself God. 
Jesus answered by declaring himself to be not a man making himself God, but he whom the Father had sent into the world, his Son, God made incarnate. Again, John 3 verse 6 is cited, quote, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. End quote. Is a man born of the Spirit made divine? Is he not rather made into a new man ethically and accordingly brought into communion with God? The clear-cut meaning is a contrast of the two humanities. Those who are members of the fallen humanity of Adam are by nature sinners and humanists. Those who are born of the Spirit are born into the new humanity of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. They are now members of the kingdom of God and are sons of God by grace, not by nature. All paganism asserts, implicitly or explicitly, the natural divinity and sonship of man. This is emphatically rejected in the Bible. Man cannot become divine. He always remains man, saved man or lost man. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and members of Christ's new humanity share in his sonship by grace. Man's communion with God and Christ is not one of substance, but of life, not of nature, but of grace. He is the recipient and partaker of God's nature ethically, not metaphysically. The goal of man, therefore, is not metaphysical, but ethical, not in terms of a unified order, but in terms of a transcendental law. Section 6. Being and Society Wherever a society has a naturalistic religion, grounded on the concept of continuity, man faces the total power of the state. This is clearly true today, as it was in antiquity. The Scythians worshipped the elements and practised veneration of ancestors, ancestors, and the royal scythes, ruled as despots. The Parthians practice a religion confirming, affirming continuity, and their monarchs had nearly despotic power and claimed the title of King of Kings. The list can be extended at length. Where there is no transcendental law and power in a separate and omnipotent being, then power has a wholly imminent and immediate source in a state, group, or person, and it is beyond appeal. The state becomes the saving power and the source of law. It becomes the priestly agency of its own total power and the manifest power of its divinity. Such a state becomes God, walking on the earth, and its every tyranny is identified as liberty because being and meaning are both identifiable in terms of the state. Since it is held that there is no law beyond the state, meaning is what the state defines and liberty is what the state provides. In this faith, for man to be free means to be in the state. More than that, for man to be, he must be a member of the state, for being is one and continuous, and salvation is a, metaphys uh, is a metaphysical unification of all being. In its older form, this doctrine held that the power and will of being were manifested or incarnated in the king, who was the bearer of power and will in relationship to men and the recipient of it from the gods. Quote, the idea of the good king who ensures the well-being of the world is practically universal. End quote. The potency of being is manifested through him. Quote, the king's power, then, is no human might, but the power, 
the potency of the world. His imperialism is not covetousness, but an assertion of his world status and his garb, the living garment of God. End quote. From the ancient kings to present empires and the United Nations, this motive is paramount. Their imperialism is seen by themselves, in all sincerity, not as covetousness, but as an assertion of that order which they incarnate. Quote, the king, then, is a god. Indeed, he is one of the first and oldest gods. Power has been embodied in a living person. In a still more literal sense than he is a god, the king is the son of God, and in this also he is a saviour form. End quote. The relativism we have previously noted is apparent in this godhood. Each king and state represent a divine order for their day. They pass away, and another truth and power succeed them. Quote, Royal power, then, is world power, but like that of the sun, it is valid only for its own period. End quote. The king has given way to a new focus for the potency of being, humanity, the new object of adoration since the Enlightenment, with the intellectual and the philosopher as its high priest. Goethe declared of the magical powers of humanity that, quote, for all human beings, pure humanity atones, end quote. The cult has its unknown soldier, lighted at his grave by the eternal flame, and Mother's Day to celebrate pure humanity, and humanity is, for many, the sole entity worthy of worship. Unfortunately for this faith, humanity, instead of manifesting power, is revealing a radical impotence. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.